Welcome everybody to Big and Robot Presents Entertaining Guests. This week we are going to be speaking with Chris Avalone, games writer, comics writer, um, designer. Is a designer? Does that fit as well? Game designer? Uh, it does. I do uh, a good chunk of game design as well. Oh, excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, yeah, thank you for uh, coming on the show and joining us, sir. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, basically uh, on the podcast, you know, we generally we talk about comics, uh, movies, video games. That's kind of our focus. So it's you're kind of the perfect person for this, Chris, because you you encapsulate Aww. all those things. Well, maybe not movies. I don't know. Have you ever worked on film at all? Uh, I tried to do the Legend of Grimrock movie script, but uh, that didn't quite pan out. So the yeah, oh. uh, so I tried it, but it's never actually reached okay. the big screen. Well, you still got time, I think. So uh, you know, could be. Fingers crossed. We'll, we'll, I certainly we'll, hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you've definitely worked in comics, and you've definitely worked in movies, and or I'm um, not movies, but you've definitely worked in games. So you've definitely got those covered, and those those tend to be our focus here. So yeah, thanks for coming on and uh, talking to us about this kind of stuff. So it's really good to have you. Yeah. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll jump in with the first question. I think people usually know you as this guy who started with D&D, writes stories, narrative. I guess narrative designer is the title I see that you get a lot. Yeah, there's there's a big debate in the communities about whether you know someone should be like a writer, or a narrative designer. I, I usually use narrative designer just because it means you're sort of got your hands more deeply into the game scripting, the quest scripting, and then a lot of uh, writers that I know. So I think the that's that's why I usually make the differentiation. Yeah, you're just not sitting there writing up ideas. You're you're getting in there and making sure that you know parts of it work. But what would you say? Who would you say you really are? Like you know, the media always has ideas of who someone is. But like growing up, were you maybe like an only child? Were you the oldest sibling? Were you maybe a bookworm or like cool jock or who are you? Who are you? Uh, I, I God, that's that's a very deep question. Um, so. <laughs> I am the younger brother of, you know, grand total of two brothers, including me. Okay. I don't know if that makes any sense. My brother was a lot more extroverted than I was. Uh, he played in a band, you know, heavy metal, death metal. He uh, was very outgoing. I was not. Uh, I was very introverted. And it was that period of time when being a geek was not cool. So there was many... <laughs> How do I put this? My damage threshold had to go up because of uh, a great deal of uh, beating up. Because, you know, they just sense that when you're down the corridors, like, aha, it's the nerd. <laughs> and uh, no, the, so the constant state of fear kept me on my toes. So that was good. I think it, it heightened my perception skills. But then eventually, like after uh, all the early school days, I actually went to this high school. It was sort of like a magnet school in Virginia. It was like the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. And there I found myself among my own kind. And I also found that I was really dumb compared to them. So I got the <laughs> reversal of what I've been feeling before, which was actually very humbling and a good a good way to sort of like, you know, check yourself. So that was, that was good. Um, but yeah, introverted, got tired of getting beaten up, and then I got used to feeling dumb. So yeah, that was uh, pretty much who I am. <laughs> that explains why you're such a nice person. I was gonna. I was gonna also chime in. Is like I was, uh, you know, doing some prep work for this, and I was watching some videos of you doing some interviews and some things, some talks and things. And you look like you're a pretty buff guy now. Like, uh, so I, I don't nah. think you'd have much. I don't think you'd have much problem now. You know, with the, the whole beating no, actually, up. Actually, yeah, I I used to uh, uh, have a better sort of work life balance, but I think ever since going freelance, I think I'm enjoying work too much. And so I don't actually hit the gym nearly as much as I used to, but uh, I'm happy. So that's the important thing. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. 
so okay well you kind of just blew through a bunch of our questions there as far as like your schooling and all that sort of stuff goes <laughs> what was your upbringing as far as like your family goes were were any your were either your parents into creative endeavors or was it a you know, was your dad like the typical business guy and your mom was a homemaker kind of thing? Like, what was that? What was your growing up period like as far as like like um, anything that might influence your creative process going forward, I guess? My dad was uh, an astronomer and a physicist, and uh, he worked uh, for the Pentagon. Uh, he never could. Holy shit, that's quite, cool. Yeah, yeah, he could never quite tell us what he did. But, you know, he'd come home and he said, you know, I may not like my job, but at least I'll have 10 minutes of warning before the nuclear warheads hit. And oh, then he would leave the room and I'd stare at the wall for a while. And then, <laughs> uh, so and my mom was a substitute teacher, which actually is a deadlier profession that my dad was involved with. Uh, you know, substitute teachers really have to struggle. So uh, she taught uh, English classes and uh, she always made sure that my grammar was correct and was, was good to me as a mom can be. I think when it came to parents, I was really blessed. Yeah, but no, uh, home life was uh, was pretty stable, actually. I, I almost venture to say that it was almost stable enough to be boring, except when I went to school. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, where you're from, if people don't know, uh, the, the Northern Virginia area is uh, commonly referred to as Nova. And it's kind of a, it's it's very much a very suburban type place, at least, you know, from like my experience with it anyway, because I, I live in Richmond. I've lived here for quite some time. But it's kind of a, it's kind of the same kind of dynamic. It's a very kind of boring place. It's like, you know, it's pretty low key, not a whole lot of craziness going on so yeah i get that i understand that um, i remember the uh, first time driving to richmond and then seeing all the buildings that had been painted uh, cigarette cartons and i was amazed oh yeah out of philip morris yeah right in front of there coming down yep. 95 yeah yep yep yeah yeah oh my god yeah that crazy that place is crazy um yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i guess uh now that we know kind of your schooling and all that sort of stuff what was the what was the thing that got you into gaming in the first place? Like, where did, what was your first experience with gaming? Was it just board games, or was it uh, uh, console gaming? Like, where did where did you start getting your foot in the door as far as that went? Well, I'd always enjoyed uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and then when I, when I first got exposed to it, I thought it was the most amazing idea ever. You know, wow, you can <laughs> you can play make with make believe, but then it's fair because there's rules and chance, and not everything goes in your favor, but that affects the story and your experience. And I, you know, I'd read all the you know the the modules for D and D and imagine myself like you know going through the dungeons and like oh yeah, I'd find that loot or I'd figure out that secret. And like <laughs> it was like it was like reading like an inter- interactive book, so that was fun to do. It was just hard to find people to actually play. D and D with like I did. I bother my mom. I bother my dad. I bother my brother. <laughs> and eventually, uh, I got a, a, a few friends who were willing to play, even though they wouldn't GM. So we went through like like Cult of the Reptile God and Temple of Mental Evil, and then we graduated over to superheroes. I guess graduation is a loose loose verb to use. We had like you know champions and Superworld, and then uh, we had a Warhammer campaign. And yeah, and then by that time it was sort of roughly around college, and I suddenly realized I had all these modules that I'd written and it felt like a waste to throw them away. So I tried to submit them and I got a number of laughable rejections back and, even, <laughs> you know, editors that would say, hey, please stop sending us stuff. And uh, some editors would even transfer me to their assistants as soon as they heard I was calling. Um, <clears throat> so that was all fun. But then eventually one of the companies that I was, that was doing the, the champions game, the hero games, they, uh, they did call me back because their editors switched and they realized they needed to fill up one of their product lines, uh, dark champions. So it was, it was kind of like a Batman style uh, champions universe. So uh, I wrote a character book for them 
and then did more work for them and then realized there's no money in pen and paper games. So uh, I'm like, oh, well, you know, I can't survive on $50 like every, you know, every month or two months. <laughs> right. So I asked them like, hey, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to keep writing for you guys, but I can't support myself this way. Can you guys have any recommendations for places I could apply to? And it turns out one of the uh, one of the owners knew uh, uh, one of the studio directors at Interplay for their like Dragon Play division, which is doing like, you know, all their all their D&D titles. And he goes, you know what? I could recommend you. And I'm like, sure, that'd be great. I'd love a steady paycheck. <laughs> and so we did. And then uh, I learned later on that uh, every time he referred somebody, he got like $300 worth of software. <laughs> so it was a, in, in, in his best interest to right. make those transactions happen. But, you know, I got out there, got lost in my way to the interview. That was great. Came in wearing a suit. I think the studio director laughed at me and goes, hey, you know, at least, at least you weren't wearing a tie. Because if you're wearing a tie, we cut it off. Uh, and then he's like, well, uh, you know, let's let's see what your design experience is. And if you were to pitch us a Planescape game, like how would you, you know, what would you do? And I, so I basically told him the summary. How I thought what would eventually become Torment. And he's like, all right, yeah, you seem all right. So he hired me like as a junior designer and then things just went from there. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. So did you, did you have any experience besides uh, pen and paper, like, well, D&D type stuff, like with console gaming, like when you were younger at all? No, not really. The only computer product I worked on before Interplay was like this uh, random. Well, not worked generator. on, like actually owned. Like you did, like when you were a kid, did you? Oh have any, like... yeah, yeah. I played a lot of piece. Uh, well, not PC, more like Commodore sixty four games and okay. even TRS eighty. So, so like you know, I played a lot of you know the original Bard's Tale one, two. Even though I thought two was bullshit. Two, two oh my god, that that dungeon design Bard's Tale two made me want to kill somebody. And then uh, <laughs> I thought Bard's Tale three was awesome. But yeah, like you know, Wasteland one I played and. Um, uh, I didn't have a lot of console games. So my parents didn't really like the, you know, the consoles, like the Atari system. So I had to settle for the Commodore 64. But uh, I was more than happy with that. So I did a lot of computer gaming for RPGs um, on that system. Okay, so then you did, you had some basis as far as like early experience with that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. yeah. cool. Right on. Was yeah. the, what was your favorite game growing up though? Like, what was the thing that really kind of like it sticks with you to this day? You're like, man, I love that experience. Uh, Wasteland One because of some design decisions they did towards the end of the game like they have this one great level where you go through a robot's brain and you use all your you use all your intellect stats to actually fight the monsters there and i thought it was the most brilliant thing i'd played up to that point i think i think mike stackpole designed it and chrono trigger that was generally every japanese rpg was pretty much i was like wow these stories are really good <laughs> as, opposed, as opposed to the other things i was playing uh first time playing pool of radiance was amazing and then um i already talked about bars Tale one two and three but uh yeah the basically they have wasteland one chrono trigger and i also like this uh, ssi game called eternal dagger which uh, was sort of the sequel to wizard's crown it had a lot of freedom and skill development even though the story was kind of weak but because it gave so much freedom and skill development it felt like you were role-playing each character and each character would have their personality or their thing like and that was that was kind of cool and yeah so that's just a few of them nice nice so before we get too deep further into games i want to say i noticed that you very much were were a writer you i think that was your major you were an english major which i commend you that's extremely brave <laughs> but i would warrant to guess that you did a lot of reading growing up did you were you a reader were there any books that were you know were a favorite for you that really just like hit a chord with you and it just stays with you to this day 
Yeah, usually just about everything by uh, Rogers Elasny. I thought it was amazing. I started with the uh, you know the, the the Chronicles of Amber, and I thought that that entire world layout they developed was great. Uh, I read a lot of comic books. Uh, you know, Alan nice. Moore, and Garth Ennis, and Frank Miller, and all all those definitely had an impact. Like everything, you know, Dark Knight Returns to you know the original Watchmen, and um, you know the entire Preacher Preacher series. I thought was was pretty damn cool. But yeah, that's uh, I. Well, it was time before Netflix, so like you know, getting movies wasn't really easy. So usually mm-hmm. it was a lot of reading and comic book reading. But uh, yeah, I had, I had a blast. Oh wait, you know what? We we grew up in the same area, and we're the same age. Do you remember? Was there an Errol's near you? And do you remember that at all? The video rental oh place. Oh yes, I remember? do. Man, <laughs> there's that open. Uh, I had to make the choice between like getting the was it the beta? What was the what was the other yeah, the system? Beta Max or the VHS? Yeah. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. We're like you know we're gonna, we're gonna go with the VHS, and then uh, yeah, every trip to that store is like a gold mine. Yeah. We're like, wow, look at all the movies. This is amazing. <laughs> oh my technology! Wow. Oh, that's so great that like we're regional. We're, we grew up in the same region, so that you actually know what that is. <laughs> that's so that's so wonderful. It takes me back. All right. Maybe like in two universes over, you guys actually became friends because you were so <laughs> close by. Well, you said your brother. How old's your brother? And he was playing death metal bands and like metal bands and stuff. Uh oh, here we go. Yeah. It's happening. Yeah. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure he's older. Three years older, 48, I think. Okay. Maybe 49. I actually forget how old I am sometimes. I'm I'm, I'm that out of touch with myself. Um, right. Don't worry. I, I do the same thing too. Yeah. Don't worry. Same. Yeah, because it's, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty so, possible yeah. that if he played bands, if he was in a band in, in Northern Virginia, it's and he played shows, it's pretty possible that I've been to one of his shows. Because I was I was really big in the hardcore and the punk and the metal scene back in the day. And I used to go to shows constantly up in, like, Woodbridge and all around in there and up in D.C. And, and you know, so, yeah, who knows? You ever heard of a band called, a band called Medusa? What? Mm, I would like to say yes, but it could just be, you know, Medusa is a fairly popular name and I could be Yeah, that, that was kind of my thought, too. But, yeah, yeah. he played, uh, he, I don't know if they had a lot of gigs, so I wouldn't be surprised. But, the uh, yeah, he certainly... Had uh, had fun doing doing those sort of off and on, so that was that was kind of cool. Right on. Myself and some friends played D and D game. We were crazy enough to start producing our own. And unfortunately, I didn't know a whole lot about D and D other than that, like, oh crap, I really like this thing. I really like this playing pretend, and then you know playing a character. It's like it's like a video game, but you can be even more expressive. So I had to go and learn it quite a bit. But the, to me, the strangest thing was the idea. I mean, I, I went and later asked my friend who GMs a lot of games. He said it was like called a supplemental, which I guess is what you were doing. And to me, that was the craziest idea that I had read that you were able to at least get some, you know, a little bit, at 50 bucks a month. The idea that you could write a campaign and then get paid for that. And it just, it just blew me away that that, that happened. It's, it's, you know, I didn't really have a question there. It still surprises me to this day. They all, they'll, you know, people will pay for computer game writing or computer game design. I thought people just did that for fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if I can make this a little more meaningful for our listeners, well, what advice would you give someone if they thought 50 bucks a month to write D&D stuff sounds great? Like, what would you tell them <laughs> other than make sure you have something else to pay bills? Uh, well, that, that piece of advice is absolutely solid. The, I'd also remind them that it's a lot of work. So if you don't naturally do it, like, and I, I was naturally doing it, the thought of getting paid didn't occur to me. I was just trying to entertain my <laughs> friends and keep a, keep a campaign going before it occurred to me. It might be a colossal waste of time unless I did something else with it. Don't ever get into 
game design or game writing for the money if that's kind of the the goal of why you you know you should just be doing it or, or any job because you love it and because you're going to spend so many of your hours love hours of your life doing it and getting the job you love i i have to say it's i i don't have hobbies because my my work is my hobby and that's you know it, it definitely keeps me going from week to week like it's never never a dull moment and get to just you know create and create and create and it's it's uh you know i'm I'm so glad I ended up pursuing this and I wasn't like a banker or teacher, or even an architect. I'm like, you know, those things don't, wouldn't have made me as happy as I am today. What about astronomer for CIA? Yeah, there you go. Ooh, no, that would, def- that would definitely uh, inform some of my superhero modules. I'm like, okay, now I know how the CIA only works. I can make adventures forever now based on the things that only I know. <laughs> Well, and that brings up an interesting uh, thing, though. You you actually did a minor in architecture at one point when you were in college. Yeah, that was a big turning point. Um, I'd gotten accepted to two colleges in Virginia. One was uh, Virginia Tech, and the other one was William and Mary. And I was, for some reason, I forget why. I think it's because I enjoyed drawing dungeon maps that I thought that I would enjoy being <laughs> nice. an architect. Oh, wow. um, okay. I was like, okay, well, William and Mary doesn't really have an architecture program, so I will I will go to Virginia Tech. But the nice thing was. William and Mary said that they liked the application so much that if I changed my mind in two years, they would automatically accept me. Oh, so I was nice. like, okay, well, that's 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 really nice. So then I went to Virginia Tech. Um, I got a lot of architecture experience and drawing experience, and get to experience like like part of the part of the program at Virginia Tech is for the first year they just give you a whole bunch of different media tools like you know you know markers or paints or you know drafting boards, and they and they teach you just how to sort of like draw outside the boundaries and think creatively before they start you know layering rules on top of that. So that was a really good experience for when I got to computer games because then I knew more about how to storyboard, how to draft out an isometric level, like, uh, because architecture had trained me to do that. So it also trained me to work really hard, like, you know, as if the Thomas Jefferson High School wasn't enough, uh, you know, architecture lab was falling up, you know, 80 or 90 hours a week, but which I got used to, which also helped with game development, because that was the kind of hours that we kind of had to pull at Enterprise sometimes to get a game done and for long periods of time. So it was good. I got, you know, that aspect of architecture training down. But at the end of the second year, my professor was going through my sketchbook and he's like, you know, Chris, you're kind of filling the sketchbook up more with words than you are with actual <laughs> sketches. Like, I, I like your sketches, but I think you may want to do something else. And I'm like, okay, well, I thought about it. And then he gave another lecture not long after to the whole architecture class that, you know, hey, if you really don't want to be an architect, you should change your life right now. And I thought he was talking to me, but he's probably talking to a bunch of people in the room who <laughs> didn't see didn't see that focus in architecture. So I called my parents and I'm like, look, uh, I think I'm ready to make a college change. And they said, oh, we knew it. And I'm like, what? Really? They're like, yeah, we knew like, oh, you would say like William and Mary resonated more with you. And like, you know, we know you want to write. And so if you want to try the English program there, we'll absolutely support you. And I'm like, oh, my God, my parents are empathic. Oh, my God, they're so wonderful. <laughs> and then uh, in the next three years, I uh, got my English major. And I confess I had really no idea what to do with it other than I just enjoyed it. So I figured right. that if I kept working at something, something would pan out. And it did. Oh, wow. That's that's pretty cool, man. That's that's pretty excellent that you have a really good relationship with your folks. And they're, they kind of already keyed into it. That's pretty uh i don't know how common yeah, that is it definitely wasn't common with me per se but yeah no that's great that you had that kind of relationship with them that's excellent yeah my parents were great yeah they were fantastic i do have to tell you guys about one other job that i had though before getting into game design and oh, weirdly yeah yeah really enough it was a role-playing job that one of my friends who was studying theater told me about 
and he's like, hey, I've signed up with this program that uh, allows you to role play criminals in police and FBI training exercises. And I'm like, well, that sounds kind of interesting really? yet dangerous. That sounds fun and, as hell, actually. Wow. Yeah, it's really where like you simulate you just got into an accident with another person and they, the police trainees show up to sort of walk through the steps of, you know, how to question the people about the accident and get all the right information, uh, you know, or like, but the, the best ones were the FBI ones because what they would do is they actually built this fake city, not, not city, but fake town outside of Quantico uh, Marine Base where they train the FBI agents. And this little fake town has like, you know, a little pool hall, you know, like a lot of residences, trailer park. And you're given this casting sheet like, hey, you know, you're the guy that stole like four crates of blank videotapes from the warehouse. And now the police are you know, now the FBI are tracking you down, uh, you know, hide in a certain section of the house and, you know, act this way if they confront you or, you know, I got, and, and, the, and the roles range from like being kidnapper to kidnappy, uh, like, and uh, that was a great experience. You didn't, you didn't get a lot of work from it, but the little work you did get paid well, and it was a lot of fun just to do. And the the idea that they built out that environment just for training was just really, really cool. Yeah, that, that is, sounds. You know, yeah. that's that sounds like a less lame version. No, it's actually no. It sounds cool, but it sounds like it doesn't have any of the lameness of like a colonial reenactment person. <laughs> who like sits in the town and is like, I yep. sew all my own clothes. I make the butter. <laughs> it's like I'm a criminal. I kidnap this person and stuff their body in in a you know in a meat locker. You'll you never catch me, copper. Yeah, yeah. You know what's funny though, Mark, is that there that's actually a pretty big thing around here because Williamsburg is real nearby too. So right, the, yeah. the, the reenactors and all that sort of thing. Oh my gosh, yeah, it's pretty silly. Oh no, I I would totally want to do what you what you just mentioned, Chris. Like that sounds actually fun. Yeah. I mean, so how many times did you, did you how many times did you end up doing that? Uh, I was actually there for about uh, three or four years. Uh, the, wow. the, the work was pretty inconsistent. Like you you might go like once or twice a week, but right. uh, yeah. it was yeah. it was it was nice supplemental income. Um, the actual FBI town was it was named Hogan's Alley, I think it was called, right. and uh, they actually featured it a little bit at the beginning of the Silence of the Lambs movie, which was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a ton of work, uh, but it was a lot of fun. Um, I will say my boss was very nice, and she goes, "Well, Chris, um, you know, I, you're you're very reliable, but I have to say, it's sometimes it's really hard to make you scary because you just don't <laughs> seem very intimidating." And I'm like, "Well, that is both kind and sad. I don't think I'm I'm destined for this role long term, which is probably good because I don't think I really wanted to be a criminal, so that's good." Right. Well, pretend criminal. Pretend criminal. Right. <laughs> so if I mean it, before we move on. Just because this idea you've told me has blown me away, and I'm and I'm like anxious to hear more. Um, so, did you live in that fake town, or did you just like show up like it was a job, and you would just sit around and wait for the trainees to come, and then act uh, out the character? Yeah, they'd uh, it'd be. Uh, so I would drive there. It was kind of a, a lengthy drive, and then uh, they would take us to a waiting room. Uh, we'd usually wait there for like you know you know, 30 minutes to an hour, we'd get our casting sheets. Mm -hmm. Then we'd go to the, the sort of stage area where the, you know, the training exercise was to you know, play out, whether, you know, you go to your trailer or whether you go to, you know, the card game you're supposed to, you know, be, be part of when the FBI trainees, like they break in, they're trying to figure out which of the four of you is the right suspect. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, or the pool hall or whatever it is. And then you're given a series of steps for how you're supposed to act when they approach you and how you you know can try and outmaneuver them if they allow for that. 
Were you were you ever the uh, the dastardly criminal? Well, uh, during the kidnapping scenario, uh, I was pretty proud of myself because I gave them all the slip and I bolted for it, <laughs> escaped, and that did not go over well with the instructor. Not not towards <laughs> me, but, uh, but towards the trainees, and he was pissed. He's uh, like, "Wow, you, well, it was, he he really let them have it," and I felt bad for them, but I also felt really. <laughs> Like, I gotten away with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, hell, how's he going to learn if he doesn't screw up every now and again, too? Right. You know? So there's that. So you're doing him a favor in the long term, or in the short term, for the long term. Exactly. You know? There you go. And it's and it's better they mess up with you than an actual criminal exactly. who kidnaps someone. Right. Right. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> well, congratulations I, on your on your wily escape, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever catch me. <laughs> Oh man, that's that's so much fun. I just I, I want to talk about this for an hour now. <laughs> right? <laughs> so interesting. That sounds like something that'd be yeah. fun to do for like a summer. Yeah, for real. Oh my gosh, no, that's great. Yeah, the, it, yeah, the, the the police ones. Uh, the police ones were a little were a little more dull. Uh, like yeah. you know, it would be the car accident stuff. But sometimes you'd get really crazy ones. Like uh, you know, police are asked to report. Uh, you know, to a school, you know, a school because they, you know, they've seen someone, uh, you know, hanging around or loitering, and uh, the, your your approach in that scenario was to take cover somewhere, and then when the cops show up, burst out and uh, you know take some shots at them, and then the the objective of that was to see how they would react when something like that happened. Like, were they prepared? Were they ready? Like, were they, you know, paying attention to the environment? But the fact that, you know, you could do that and, you know, you could point even a fake gun at cops and fire away. That was, that was pretty, that was pretty thrilling. <laughs> Dude, that sounds like a blast. That really does. Oh my gosh. You've had, you've had a pretty interesting life as far as your work experience goes. Wow. That is so cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty jealous. To, to bring it down to a, a less fun question or interesting question, um, but still, <laughs> but still part of a necessity of the interview, nonetheless. Uh, what is what is the process of writing a video game like? I mean, how similar is it to writing comics or say uh, or writing other types of books? I mean, is there is there a a system in place that is fairly rigid, or I mean, like how does how does that work exactly? Give us an idea for anybody that maybe want to get into this kind of thing. Like, what what can they expect from it? Well, I think uh, writers have different approaches. Uh, the way I like to approach it is when getting onto a game, I first of all want to get a sense for what the core core pillars of the game are. Like, what what are like the the three big things that define this game? Like, is it a survival horror experience? Like, you know, and other pillars, you have no weapons. Like, it's all you know you know, scare thrills, whatever, or whatever happens to be, or like it's a full-on survival game. It's super realistic. And, and that's kind of the, the point of it. And then once you have those pillars, then what I like to do next is I haven't done any writing yet. Um, okay. The next thing I do is assuming it's not a franchise, which, you know, with franchises, you immediately have to start absorbing everything you can with that franchise. But if it's not <laughs> a franchise or, or, or while you're absorbing franchise material, the next step I like to do is grab any existing design documentation, especially system design, and read through what the gameplay from moment to moment is supposed to be like. Like, what's what's the player doing every second? Like, what's the what's the activity that they're supposed to be enjoying? And then, um, 
once I've absorbed that, I've asked all the questions that I need to uh, for things like parameters for like how long the game's supposed to be, you know, what you know, what engine might be being used, what the editor is, you know, what's your dialogue tools, how to how are you envisioning the story being presented, like you know, what interface screens, or is it based on some other game that already has a presentation methodology that you have to follow? Like, you know, for example, if we're doing like Fallout New Vegas, like it's pretty clear we're going to have to present you know, dialogues and the environment, you know, pretty much like Fallout 3. Like, uh, this, mm-hmm. we can change the we can change the words and the actors, obviously, in the story setting, but the presentation is going to be largely the same. So that knowing that stuff is important when, when writing the story, too. Um, but then you sit down, you write, and you go, okay, well, now that I know all the pillars of the game, um, I'm, I'm familiar with the franchise, I know all the systems, uh, at that point, what kind of story can I write that will support that type of gameplay? Uh, and, you know, how can I complement the systems that are being used, you know, the weapon design? And I usually try and start with a one-pager that just hits the major beats. Um, and it usually has, like, a one-sentence where I'm like, what would one player tell another player about this game and why it's cool? Like, you know, is it Bioshock with dinosaurs? Like, what's, what's, what's the one <laughs> sentence that's going to communicate the gist of this game and, and why someone would want to play it? Like, that's... That's the thing. And then you take that one pager, you run it by all the uh, all the leads and you're like, you know, even lead animator, lead art, you know, lead artist, all those all the all, all the all the stakeholders in the game get their questions, get their approval, get their sign off. And that's important because, you know, when their team members ask them about the story, they can speak to it and then say why they're in favor of it because they've already asked all the questions they need and you've hopefully settled any doubts they have. And then you just start iterating on that story. So you take the one pager and you're like, okay, well, now four pages. Like, let's detail out more of the areas where we think the theme of the story would, you know, be conveyed or the arc of the story or, you know, some scary locations for a survival horror game. Like, and what are the major characters? Like, what's the bestiary going to be like? You know, what, what sort of, you know, inhabitants of the environment will also help support the story? And then um, you take that you keep expanding it you start breaking it down into region design docs or level design docs you um uh you also start doing uh character bios for things like okay well you know here's the main antagonist you know here's backstory here's how he's introduced to the game here's the pacing of it here's any allies he has and you just keep building that lore the characters and the story and just increasing detail until you start writing quests and dialogue and uh you keep doing that until it hits the qa phase (laughs) Okay. Well, so then you don't you don't already start out with it's like necessarily like we have to get to this point, so we're gonna we're gonna have this many quests, and we have to necessitate you know it has to be like like as far as the franchise like well they people have an expectation of the last game did this, so we have to iterate on that and do this many things. So it's that's not really even like when you're starting out, that's not really even a concern. Actually, well, um, no, that's a good point. It is. Uh, so with the pillars, I guess I probably should add that any, any parameters that the game has uh, should also be kept in mind. So like, uh, so for, for Fallout New Vegas, uh, there's some pretty clear parameters that, you know, were laid out at the outset. First off, it's, you know, it's going to use the Fallout 3 engine. Like there's, there's no debate on that. Right. Uh, also, uh, you know, obviously set in the Fallout universe and has all the principles of, you know, that guide Fallout, like, hey, there's three archetypes you can play. Um, the gameplay should support all those archetypes. Uh, you know, it should have that Fallout 1950s imagining the future vibe, as well as the post-apocalyptic vibe. Uh, also, you know, our game had to be on the western half of the U.S. and should feature a signature city, just like 
Fallout 3 did with Washington, D.C. So, you know, Vegas was pretty much a, a prime contender for that. So parameters like that are also part of your story design and inform your decisions, too. How would you see your tabletop uh, game experience translates to game design? I mean, I've gotten a feeling of how your experience with tabletop games and writing narratives overlaps with this. How would you say they, how they differ? Like, I mean, in both cases, you have to sort of anticipate, you know, choices a player might make and then make sure mm-hmm. that the story stays engaging. How would you say they overlap and, and, um, and how they contrast? Um, well, contrast is probably the easiest thing to talk about first. Uh, mm-hmm. So first off, the amount of detail that you have to do for a computer game uh, is far, ex- far exceeds what you have to do for a pen and paper game where you can improv uh, based on what the players want to do at any given moment. Uh, for like designing a level, a quote unquote level for a pen and paper game uh, is, can be much more vague about certain specifics but a game design of a town, like, you know, if you take, you know, Good Springs or New Vegas, you have to know the names of all the key inhabitants. You have to know all, all their inventory items. You have to set all their skill levels. You have to know what happens uh, when any of them die. Uh, you have to lay out the quests very, very specifically in terms of what the stages are. Uh, you have to account for every possibility a player can do in that quest uh, because you you aren't there running the game, like you have to you have to ensure the scripting and the code will take care of all those all those situations. And then like you know you know everybody's like day and night routines. The you know the most like the specific layout, the specific items the merchant has, like all of these things require sort of an excruciating amount of detail compared to pen and paper. Um, now similarities is I think one thing that pen and paper gaming uh, was really good. For training me on was the importance of just realizing that every player wants to feel special and they want to feel special in how they built their character so if they did make that thief character that's sort of the power fantasy they want they want to be you know the crafty guy they want to be able to sneak around they want to ambush people are you designing quests or scenarios that allow that one person to have their shining moments where they're really cool because they've developed the character that way and we we had to do this when we were doing uh, Fallout Van Buren uh, back at Interplay, and Van Buren was kind of like the code name for uh, Interplay's attempt to do Fallout 3, which didn't really pan out. But we actually did a pen and paper game for Van Buren, and you know there was two different pen and paper groups testing out uh, you know the levels and the quests they were planning to include in the game, and the most fun challenge of it was these were 12 different characters. Like you had to like design something cool for the Xboxer from New Reno along with the super mutant knight Ken who's a master of stealth. And like you had to make every quest and area have something cool for those characters to do and some viable way for them to go through it. And that was, that was a really fun challenge. Um, also like a lot of the stuff that you do for, for laying out pen and paper game sessions, like drawing maps and um, you know, setting up loot tables, like all of that stuff pretty much translates into pre-work you have to do for level design in, right. in uh, computer games as well. Like, you know, gathering reference art, getting snapshots of an area uh, so you can show them to the players. All those things you, you'll you find that you end up doing again for computer games. So usually presenting it to a team member and going, hey, here's what I sort of imagine this inventory item looking like, or here's some reference art for the level that I thought was cool, or for the bunker door, or, you know, how the, you know, this particular, you know, character looks like you know this this photo i dragged off the net and like all those things like um sort of become part of your arsenal 
I, you, you were kind of once again you 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 at the start you hit a lot of our questions without us even asking it. <laughs> right. But what was, would be that was, very that was very rude of me. <laughs> no 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 no. Hey 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 man. We'll we'll take it as yeah. any way you want to give it. Yeah, like if, if as long as it gets us to the finish line. <laughs> um, but it's not like you were you you were explaining that it's a lot more involved than I think people would anticipate for a narrative designer. Like it's not like there was some crunchy aspects. If you could just touch briefly on that. Yeah. Um, so sometimes writers want to get into the game industry because they feel that writers have a lot of power there and they can tell their story. And one cautionary tale I always share with them is that usually when you get onto a project, you will be writing for someone else or you'll be writing for a franchise and the story will not belong to you. In fact, you can you can be a torch holder for it, but often someone else will have the authority on that story. And also you really need to take a step back from your own work sometimes because you have to realize when you're writing for a game, it has to be the player's story too. And you have to give them freedom to actually interact with it because that's where the real, the real, the best moments I think actually come with stories. It's not what some NPC of the talking head is, you know, telling the player, it's going to be what the player is actually doing in the environment or that near death experience. You know, they went through, in a, you know, killing 20 orcs in a narrow corridor with only a hammer, like stuff like that is stuff that you can't really write. And I mean, you could, but it's much more of a passive, it's much more of a passive experience for the player to absorb something like that versus something they're actually doing. And that actually makes their story. So making sure that writers know that they should, let the player have some freedom in what they do and they they shouldn't hold every word or scene sacred like oh the player has to experience this or else you know my magnum opus won't be won't be fully right. realized I, I always say no to that i'm like nope you got it i don't agree i think you should let the player find those find those beautiful moments on their own because they probably have a different outlook on life than you do and they see different things as being special um i mean i'm not saying you shouldn't throw those things in if you want to, but don't mandate the player has to experience each one of those. That's kind of claustrophobic and confining. Also, um, for the more crunchy aspects, you really have to know um, just about, you know, a ton of stuff about Word, ton of stuff about Excel. Like, uh, you're going to be doing a lot of work in spreadsheets, believe it or not. Um, you know, Excel is kind of like the final destination for almost all the writing in a computer game. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, then they, ha they have to have that because they have to track localization and line translations and then export it for the studio and then, you know, how the recordings take place there. Make sure that everything is really carefully tracked because if you miss miss a line or two or if a file name gets messed up, like, you know, that can really, <laughs> really be a, you know, a lurking landmine in your in your computer game that some player is going to find. Um, so there's that. And then uh, practicing your technical writing. Uh, you're going to be doing a lot of emails, but more importantly, you're not only have to be going to have to write dialogue and write quests and story, but you're going to have to organize that information too. Like you're going to have to have spreadsheets for the quests. You're going to have to indicate the specific stages, uh, you know, suggested rewards for each stage of the quest. Uh, usually, you'll have to be doing your own information tracking. Like you'll have to have uh, knowledge of, um, you know, how to name variables, how to set variables, when to set variables. Um, you know, have you accounted for every single way a player might 
you know, attack a quest? Like, is there a way they may have completed the quest before they even talk to the quest giver? And uh, all of those things just come from a misery of mistakes that I've made over the past <laughs> 20 years. But uh, I, I'm, ha- I'm happy to share those things. But yeah, there's there are a lot of crunchy bits to game writing. And it's not always, you know, the dream of sitting down and, oh, I'm going to write my own favorite character today. No, usually it's a it's a lot of surrounding work to actually make that character realized properly in a computer game. You said when you talked about pitch of landmines, I heard a chuckle. I'm pretty sure there's a st- is there is there a story there, Chris? Not one that I remember. Um, you just you can just you just recall the agony of being in those situations. Yeah. You have that lingering well, pain in the back of your brain still. It's like oh. this is a related topic, but um, sometimes we would have the misfortune. Uh, on various projects to get assigned a script doctor. And um, I don't mind a script doctor per se when they're actually helpful. Uh, but the Uh-oh. problem is uh, a lot of them wouldn't know how to work an Excel file. So what would happen is, you know, in one particular case, I think it was like um, Star Wars and Nice Republic 2, uh, we had a script writer come in mostly because they, I got the impression that they didn't have anything for him to do at LucasArts, so so we got him. Um, and, and he was helpful for, for some of the lines, but the problem was, at some point, uh, a cell got deleted, or a row got deleted, and everything, all the numbering was thrown off. So when the import happened, it actually messed up all the dialogue in the game. Um, oh. And these are the things that you have to be careful. Even when you get like Excel sheets back in the translator, you have to watch out for this. So overall, like there were some things that, you know, he was helpful about for like condensing certain lines or, you know, um, certain tone aspects. But overall, it actually would have saved us time if that hadn't been part of the process, just because it's so easy to mess something up like that if you don't, you know, if you aren't careful. So, so basically what you're saying is he came in and deleted system 32 and kind of, Fuck <laughs> <up>. <laughs> Suddenly, every, having every line offset by one created some really strange conversations. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what? oh that's it's, great! It's like when you have closed caption on your TV and it gets thrown off, right. and it just yep. looks bizarre. Yeah, nope. oh, <laughs> like what God. the hell is going on now? <laughs> okay, so I think I know how I do it. You know, going in and building a world for a story. Um, I mean, I've, I've yet to build one for a game. But how do you start to do it? Like, not necessarily in terms of games, because you've explained the pillars, but how do you, you know, for, whether it be for your entertainment or for, for, for D&D, how do you build a world? Well, I start off uh, with the, the genre or whatever rule system I'm going to use, because usually I don't make up my own rule system for a game. I, I use that as a tool for telling the story. And it was either like, you know, D&D or hero games or whatever. And um, so I figured that out. Yeah, maybe the best way to approach it is like, uh, so when I was working on uh, the New Vegas DLCs, um, we had that question of how to build the first DLC uh, in the series, which was Dead Money, which sort of had a, a mixed reception. You can you can blame me for that. Actually, actually but, hold on, hold on. Let me interrupt you real fast, Chris. So for those of you who don't know, I interviewed Chris some years back about uh, New Vegas. So whenever he brings up New Vegas, like a small part of my brain is lighting up and like I want to start cheering. <laughs> And even though I know people didn't like Dead Money, I loved the hell out of it. And I was such a dweeb that I started to like role play my not not in real life, but in the game, I started to build a persona for my character and I started to role play. It. And I think I even told you this when I interviewed you back then, my character became like a giant Varakis fanboy in playing the <laughs> DLC. So when I met when I met um was was um, Dean Domino, was that his name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my character murdered the hell out of him. <laughs> 
So, but I'm sorry. I just wanted to share that because you keep mentioning. I'm like, I have to tell them. I have to tell them. But all right, go on, Chief. Yeah. So when we were we were building um, uh, the sort of parameters for for that and constructing the like the quote unquote world, even though you know it's a, it's a DLC, we started breaking down. Um, what we wanted to see from that world. So the first thing was, hey, you know, we don't have a lot of resources for these DLCs. So a lot of the 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 changes or the you know evolution or improvements, um, all of those sort of have to come through the the environment and ambience. And also, you know, is there any way those environments can help solve technical issues for us? So uh, we knew that uh, mostly because I've always wanted to do one. The I wanted to do like, oh, I thought survival horror would be cool. Like I want sort of a more survival experience for Fallout because people like would, you know, stockpile stem packs and it would make combat not very easy and you'd forget about crafting stuff that could help you survive because you just didn't need it and you didn't care. Um, but then for Dead Money, I'm like, you know what? Well, now let's, you know, make the crafting system more important. Like let's make stem packs more valuable again. Um uh, let's make the player feel like they really have to fight for you know every inch of ground in that DLC. So that's that's kind of the survival experience. And then, okay, well, what would, what would create you know a sense of horror in this location? Well, the first thing you do is you start uh, obscuring line of sight whenever possible. Um, so we had a lot of the the toxic clouds around the the city, which served to not always give you a sense of where every enemy was, uh, but also helped prevent this issue that we had in New Vegas where a lot of the levels just got built too big with too many assets. So as soon as you saw one, like it would slow the entire game down. So for dead money, we're like, you know what? We are going to build a lot of structures that block line of sight. Um, so we're gonna have this like enclosed town that you, you go through in the casino. Um, but we're also have these toxic clouds that also surround the city and also limit, you know, the amount of view the player can see. And that will also help on the technical side for us to to create this environment. So it could they could serve a dual purpose. And then we're like, okay, well now we get the bestiary. Like uh, we want, you know, we think that there's a certain zombie type we might want to use to inspire uh, terror, not just with, you know, their appearance, their behavior and their sound effects, but also how you fight them. And we're like, hey, well, let's switch their fighting style. So you have to figure out how to kill them because reducing the zero hit points doesn't always work. And then we're like, but even with that, like combat characters are not going to be scared by these guys. So what would scare a player? And this was a, a mistake, by the way. I don't, this was done. This was not a, a positive <laughs> learning experience. Right. Um, for us, it was like, you know what? Well, we'll have these collars on the people's necks that were, you know, in the core game. And what they would do is they'd be set off by things in the environment. Um, so what would happen is you'd get to an area and then your collar would beep. And immediately, like people like up on the Let's Plays, they immediately rush backwards because they would they don't want their head to blow off. But these signals would actually cause, you know, the, the bomb collar to blow your head off. So the trick was to approach one of these dangerous areas, which you usually had to get through, figure out where that stupid beeping was coming from and disable <laughs> But finding it was really difficult. And we saw that give people a lot of adrenaline rushes and also a lot of anger and rage quit because, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it, it was basically insta-death, even though we were trying to play fair. But uh, some, of the, some of the placements for those detonators was really tricky. And we had a lot of fun with like, the visual storytelling for other prisoners who had been in this town who had actually tried to find the detonator and it failed. So they like, would have like ladders up against walls. And yeah, see I remember that yeah. yeah. So the little, little visual storytelling moments like that were part of the design. And then we're like, well, a casino heist would be cool. So let's make that a, a figurehead for the experience. Um, 
what sort of elements have we foreshadowed in, in, the, in the core game that we can start developing along the DLC paths? So we're like, well, we can include hints of Ulysses, like we can include um, references to seemingly innocuous props in the core game, like, you know, the Dean Domino poster. We're like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if Dean Domino was still around? Um, so we put him in the DLC to sort of like uh, create connections there. And then um, we also knew we didn't have a lot of resources, like, uh, or especially time. We're like, we have to get this right and get it right quickly. So <laughs> we're like, you know what? It would be in our best interest to control the scope of this DLC. So let's do something similar to what Fallout 3 did with the pit and make it a series of levels that you go through rather than a full open world environment. Because full open world takes a lot of time, creates a lot of bugs, and we had a really tight deadline. So we're like, okay, let's let's manage our scope and expectations and to make sure we can get this done. So that was part of the reason we had this enclosed uh, enclosed villa and the enclosed casino is because we're like, you know what, we only we don't want the player to st- you know, stray too far off the range. But the, the problem with that, of course, is that that's sort of anti-fallout. So uh, that was an issue too. But, but all these factors are things that you think about when you're sort of constructing lore in the story before you even get to the juicy bits, like, you know, who the, who, you know, who the characters are, like, what's their motivation for being there? You know, how do they reinforce the theme? Like, you know, is there any way that, you know, they can help you reach your objective? Why are they there? Who's the antagonist? Have we foreshadowed him enough? Like, does, it, does his reasons make sense? All this stuff um, just sort of ends up being like the skeleton that you start, you know, fleshing out and, and making the, 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 the end result. Wow. Um, so- <laughs> That was that was very thorough. I appreciate that, sir. Thank you. (laughs) So okay, I I have a QA background. So I know when you were talking about, you know, Excel spreadsheets and all that, I'm like I I had the flashbacks sitting there three in the morning and the next you know, the other shift it just you know. Well anyway, I don't need to share my war stories. But I was I was good at QA because I like breaking games. Like once I've played if I really like a game and I played (laughs) the hell out of it, I'm like, Well, time to go break it. Let's see if I can now break this mission. To the point where it's like, like this would have been a showstopper, and they would have had to like send this back to the dev team, would be <laughs> furious that some part of my language, that some shithead tester went and broke the mission, <laughs> and now they have to spend more time to fix it. Yep. Um, but in D, in a past D game, I played a particularly paranoid character, and I was constantly trying to subvert my GM, and I'm pretty sure he hated it. <laughs> um, like. Like, it was going to go to the point where my character was starting to become worried that the gods were controlling him, and that they were directly influencing what happened, i.e. he unwittingly knew that there was a GM. Um, but we, but we <laughs> the game ended up stopping before there. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, was there ever a time, whether it be with D&D or a game, where you were completely thrown off by a player's choice, and it just, like, trashed what you had designed or planned out? Yeah, we were doing the uh, Fallout pen and paper game, um... Uh, someone scored a critical hit out of the blue on one of who I envisioned to be one of the few primary antagonists and killed him arguably at the, you know, the first 10% of the game. uh, However, then I saw the reactions of people around the table and they were happy and laughing and cheering. And it occurred to me that that's the story it's a cool story now. Like they, they can say, guess what I did? Like <laughs> he's he's some kind of badass and he's doing all this shit and talking down to us. And I, you know what? I blew that sucker's head off. He didn't, he didn't see that coming. And, right. well, I should and then, I, and then um, what I initially thought, you know, I, you know, I, in, in my mind, I saw all these dominoes falling for all this work that was wasted. But then 
I'm like, well, that's just it's just a different story now. And actually, yeah. it's exciting to see how that will play out now. Like, what will the absence of that guy do? Like, what what will killing him early mean? And then I'm like, and then I then it got really interesting. Where I'm like, well, this is what a role playing game's about. It's like reacting to things like that that happen from the players. And can you still draw an interesting story from it? And often you absolutely can. It actually becomes an even better story because now that person had a dramatic change in it that now you can account for. And that's part of what makes Fallout great. Like, it's that kind of RPG. And that actually leads perfectly into what I was going to ask you next was um, you, the, w- the way you're describing what you're doing as far as the writing process goes, it seems that you're, I guess, the term, you're, you're more of a story facilitator than almost anything else because like you said you don't want to you don't want to um create the story and tell the person how they have to play it you want to present these things and you know i mean not you know concretely but you want to present it and let the player kind of figure it out and do those kind of things so it's kind of like you're a story facilitator to a certain degree um i mean that does does that sound about right i mean is there any truth to that at all or am i just up my yeah, own ass right it, now <laughs> actually uh, no that's that's a fair way to approach it like uh when writing for open world games uh, that that is a lot of the approach like you know what are you allowing the player to do in the environment and i, I sort of see my responsibility with an open world game to be create a really interesting world to explore um that's that you know the the, the world has a history you know it uh, had a future it's heading towards but ultimately it's a player's playground and in terms of story, I mean, you can't have a story, a single player story that, you know, goes across the world. I think those tend not to work. In all honesty, I think that ends up being distracting from what players really want to do mm-hmm. in an open world game. Uh, so what I like to do instead is have the people you meet have their own individual stories that you can interact with if you want. Like okay. you might meet someone who's interesting or a companion that's interesting and you might choose to engage with them but they're not the ones that are telling you to go from point A to point B to point C in a linear path. They're just, they're just elements that you can engage with that will you know, teach you more about the world or provide an interesting experience. But ultimately, you're the one driving the truck. So right. um, that's kind of my approach to it. Okay, okay. Well, then I guess, the, and then again, this is kind of along the same kind of lines because of what you've been talking about as far as the writing process goes. Uh, do you do this? Is this all you or do you have a group of people that you work with or a writing partner specifically that you work with? Because this seems like this seems like a monumental task. I mean, this seems like a lot of work. Uh, it depends. Uh, sometimes it is just me. Uh, really? And other times, other times you'll have uh, the good fortune to have uh, gameplay scripters who can help you set up uh, certain interactions, in the environment or, uh, you know, you work you usually you're working with a with a great set of level artists and environmental artists too who can you know help you arrange the props in an environment to tell a story who get you know the graffiti you need to tell a story uh, without any words beyond the actual symbols on the walls um you know, work with the animators because the animation will tell you a lot about a character you're talking to or even how they fight tells you a lot about the world and the story um when it comes to the actual writing uh i've worked on um uh games with large writing teams uh divinity original sin 2 has uh has a large number of writers and uh we bounce ideas back and forth either through google docs or uh for the occasional skype call and that's 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 a that's a great way to develop a story and then allow because because usually every each of them does a companion or a backstory and so they take the communal story and then they have a companion that sort of provides their perspective on that world or addresses an element in that world they're really excited about. So having a team like that 
is I think creates a, a much richer world than just one tone throughout. Um, and then uh, back at back at Black Isle, uh, back at Interplay, we had the good fortune that a lot of our level designers were actually good writers. So they were able to oh. do the job of level design and writing at the same time. So that that was a that was a positive thing. Um, so the number of people you're working with uh, can be large, it can be small. I could say nothing of the audio department and you know voice actors and voice directing, like all of that stuff comes into play with the story. And I don't think any one thing trumps another. Like in some cases, it feels like the writing's the least important part. Like there's just so much more that comes that goes into it. That's you know as important, if not more important, uh, that it ends up being a. It, it sort of has to be a collaborative effort. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess the well, this is this is totally unrelated. The next question, but it's you know something I was kind of curious about. Um, is there a, a is there ever a component of the Hollywood system or the quote unquote Hollywood system when you're doing a game where you've got to deal with things like focus groups or you have people higher up in the chain that kind of look at what you're doing and be like, Oh no, we got to change this. We got to, you know, got to do that. And it's kind of like, and to put it in kind of blunt terms and it kind of chaps your ass because you feel like they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. I mean, does that ever happen when you're working on a game? Like, you know, is that ever an experience that you've had personally? Uh, yeah, it does happen. Um, so the focus groups are actually a very good thing. Um, because sometimes you can be too close to your own game uh, right. that you don't see some obvious flaws with it. And right. like when I was working on Planescape Torment, like we didn't realize that people might miss the first companion, Mort, in the in the game right at the outset because he's really small. But watching all these people play the game and seeing a great many of them forget to grab him, find him, or add him to the party was immediately a big problem that we probably wouldn't have expected because we, we were too familiar with the game. Okay. Um, the only the only tough part about focus groups is if you see a common problem that you can't change, like there's a resource issue with it, like you can't recast the voice actor, like um, okay. people don't like a certain element, but you know you don't have the time to change it or fix it. That's the most frustrating part because you want to fix everything and you want to make it good, right? But um, you just you just you just can't, and that's that's the worst part. Um, but again, like having that knowledge as quickly as possible, we staged a lot of uh, focus groups for um, the the New Vegas DLCs. We try to do that, you know, as often as we had time for, and as early as we had time for, so we try and prevent those problems. But um, there were some components that we just you know you know couldn't change or didn't have the time to change, and that was. That was kind of rough, so that was kind of hard to hard to deal with. Okay, um, uh, how is uh, how is how has gaming changed since you first got into it? When did you start? Back in '95, I think it was with Interplay. I believe it was. Yeah, I think I got into Interplay like '89. I think. It's oh, was been it so long Oh, okay. I yeah, thought, I thought it was. Or, well, okay, I thought it was a bit later than that. But well, how is well, then? The question still stands though, as far as like uh, video games and both tabletop gaming. What is how is how have you seen things changed? Have they? Has it gotten you know easier? Is it getting harder? Like what what what's the landscape now as opposed to when you first started in it? It has gotten a lot more specialized. When I first started out, like the idea of voice acting an entire game was very no no one would have considered doing that for an RPG. That was just ridiculous. And then having you know the amount of detail in the environments, like I don't think anyone could have imagined how far that would go. And so basically, your workload has increased, but your the narrowness your role your role has gotten kind of narrow. Like um, 
when I first started out, like there were some companies that didn't have designers, like Blizzard didn't have a position that was a designer, like they didn't see really? any value in that position. And usually a lot of a lot of programmers are the designers for games, which is fine. They, uh, uh, then, you know, over the years, suddenly there was a designer role. And then suddenly that role broke down to, well, you're not just a designer, like are you a system designer? Are you a level designer? Like are you an interface designer? Are you, you know, a creative designer? You do a lot of writing. Like are, the, the, the roles just started branching and branching. But the type of work you did suddenly got very got narrower and narrower. Where you know you, you know I might not be involved with systems at all, or you know uh, I might have only a little impact on level design when previously it would have been a much larger part of my role. So that's that's one thing that's changed. And then um, the actual process for writing hasn't changed too much. And actually, the presentation of the writing beyond voice acting, I don't feel has, has really you know gone through leaps and bounds. I, I think VR is probably going to change a lot of that um, just because it can read your gestures and where you're looking and track all that and respond to it. Um, but I think when it comes to actual like console or PC, you know, writing and presentation, that really hasn't changed a whole lot, except it's gotten a lot more expensive. Okay. Well, well you just actually gave me a, a tasty little nugget that I'd be remiss not to mention. You, you mentioned that VR is going to change things because it actually can see your motions and, or not emotions, but your, your movements and things like that and can kind of read you. Is this something that you might be working on currently, perhaps in an upcoming project, maybe? Uh, yeah, actually, I worked on um, uh, one VR adventure style game uh, last year. And uh, they ran me through all the all the scripting conditionals that could be checked for any particular conversation and uh, things like, you know, do you know, do you hand do you shake somebody's hand when it's offered like uh, or, you know, do you yank your hand back? Like, do you not do you not look at the person directly? Do you not make eye contact like all of those things or, or even how you use items, in the environment like, you know, hey, you, know, take, you take like a, like a laser pointer pen and you point at someone's eye. Like all of those things will cause reactions in those people that create, you know, interactions. But it's not just solely dialogue. There's a lot more gestures and body language involved, which adds a real rich layer to, you know, any conversation because that's, you know, it's but you're not it's not, you're, it's not it's not talking heads anymore. Suddenly, you know it's you're more part you're more immersed in that world and immersed in that conversation and suddenly you're very conscious of everything that you're doing but these are things that we've just sort of come to instinctually recognize when having a conversation with somebody but then in vr like it's kind of refreshing to suddenly be aware of all those things again and then see the game and the game world react to those things is is very cool uh, how's uh, the tabletop uh gaming changed since uh, you first first started working on it then Oh, um, well, I, I confess I, I don't have time to do a lot of tabletop gaming. Um, I did play a little bit of Pathfinder uh, recently, and then because uh, uh, we said like lunch games. And uh, also, we played in a Greyhawk campaign uh, also during lunch games. Uh, but the things I've noticed about uh, tabletop gaming is it's much easier to get a group together via remote. Like, there's all sorts of tools and utilities to help people in different, you know, states or parts of the world actually get together for a game. And that's kind of cool to see, because I know one of the big challenges is when, you know, all your friends scatter to the winds, it's hard to get together for a game anymore. So having those tools at your disposal and, you know, maps that can show up on people's like, you know, screen shares and displays, like all that stuff is very cool for bringing a gaming group together, even when you're not in the same room. So that's, that's kind of cool to see. Uh, the group that I play with, me and the GM are also in California, but everyone else is is all over the country, and we use what's called Roll. I mean, we use Roll Twenty, and that's how we're able to like play D and D. 
uh, on the internet. Uh, so my next question, and this is this is a bit of a, of, um, I guess, a personal philosophical one. What do you consider yourself to be more? Uh, like, so like, if you had to put this on your business card, would you have it say Chris Avalon game designer or Chris Avalon games player? I mean, not just like business card. No one would put games player on their business card. But what <laughs> do you consider yourself to be more? Oh, uh, game designer. Yeah, I think I'm more recognized for game writing, but uh, I think the I think game writing is a, a different kind of game. It's just that with with writing, I think um, there's a there's a number of approaches you can do to game writing, and you know if you're just doing exposition or if you're just doing something the player passively listens to, that's obviously not a game. It's just giving you information. But if you actually turn dialogues and interactions into systems, um, and uh, worked in espionage, I worked in an espionage RPG called Alpha Protocol, which yes. did sort of right. dialogue system for which the designer is to be commended. Um, the that becomes much more of a game, or things that affect your alignment, or affect you know faction standing, or you're able to use skills in dialogues, or or find ways to explore dialogues like you would a dungeon. Suddenly, those interactions become something more than exposition, and the player is more a part of it. And that's much more of a game of a game to me rather than just writing. So just by the fact that you do more designing than playing, you just feel more you're a designer. Okay. Um, you said in an interview that you weren't you didn't feel you were growing as a designer, and that you're freelance. You feel like you've opened yourself up and you're growing more. Uh, have you gained any insights that you think you can share that you didn't have previously as a result of of going freelance and you know growing <laughs> as you said? Yeah, actually, there's a few things. Uh, so some of it is pretty pragmatic. Uh, I think a lot of <clears throat> the uh, the tasking software and um, the issue tracking that other companies use is uh, far superior to what I've used in the past. Uh, the ways they're able to collaborate, um, even with something as seemingly basic as, you know, everyone having access to a Google Drive, like, it's the easiest thing in the world, but the way it really speeds up your collaboration and the way, you know, allows people to simultaneously review and work on documents, uh, you know, get, all that stuff really makes things just get, get finalized faster. Like you, you, it's, I didn't realize how many roadblocks were ever sort of part of the, you know, the, the older, the older procedures I was using. So that, that's one thing, like, anywhere from communication tools to how you organize your documents um, and whatever, you know, what the tracking software you use. Also, being exposed to a variety of different game editors and seeing how content is implemented uh, across different games, that, that's been really eye-opening in terms of what, what what works or, you know, what things you probably wouldn't take with you when you were designing an editor on your own. Um, and also the, the range of other writers you meet, I think, is important. Uh, like we... I've always been able like, to work with other writers at, at previous companies, but now it's like I've been able to work with like, you know, anywhere from like 25 to 30 other different writers, you know, over the span of, you know, each year. And then you learn their techniques and how they approach stuff. And you'll learn something, you know, at least one thing, if not, you know, a bunch of stuff from, from each one where you're like, oh, wow, that's a much better way to approach that. Or, oh, that's a much better way of conveying that situation. Or, oh, I wouldn't have thought of conveying that story element that way. Or, uh, you know, or designing it with, you know, art that way. Like all these things just suddenly become part of your library. And I didn't realize, I didn't really realize exactly how, how small my library was until I sort of got out in the world. I'm like, wow, there are many, many, many other ways to do this. There's other ways 
that genre that genres outside of role playing games have great ways to tell stories that role playing games would benefit from and vice versa. And now I can share those things and they can share the same things with me. And then I can learn how to do it on those projects. Like, you know, I, I learned a lot from working on prey. Um, you know, I also learned, learned a lot, uh, you know, working on divinity, uh, you know, the system shock reboot, like all these things just, you know, it's, it's really shaken up my, my design process in a good way. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Well, I'm glad you brought up Prey, because that actually brings us right into the next section. Um, I was going to ask you some stuff about Star Wars, uh, but you actually you've basically answered all of it. So it's like, yeah, we can just skip that section now. That's fine. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, Prey. Uh, yeah, you. so that's that's the latest game you've worked on. Um, I guess the, the obvious question for me anyway, and for maybe for a lot of folks who haven't played it yet, because I've only played the, the little demo section, and I didn't really get a... a a strong understanding about the game other than kind of the game mechanics and how things work more than anything else. Um, is there, is there any kind of connection narratively uh, consistent between the first game and the, the one that just came out recently? Uh, the, uh, the latest prey uh, takes place in an entirely uh, different universe, different timeline. It's a, uh, it's uh it doesn't ha- it doesn't have any connection to the previous prey games. No. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, how'd you end up, uh, how'd you end up working on prey? Like what was the, was it just, Kind of like they needed somebody with that kind of experience that you have as far as like the, the very large narrative branchy type stuff or or was this something you went after? You're like, oh, they're making a new prey game. Hmm. Well, uh, it was actually really flattering. The uh, the studio director of Arcane in Austin, uh, Raphael, he he just dropped me a line one day and said, hey, I, I, I really like your work. Um, would you ever be interested in writing for us? And at the time, I, I couldn't accept. Um, but then later on, I could. So I, you know, I wrote back to him, and I'm like, "Hey, as you know, is that offer still open? Because I'd be very interested in working with you." <laughs> and you see, within a week, it was all good to go. Uh, I, you know, was able to go down to Austin, uh, see their layouts for the game, see their proposed cast list for you know, you know, each character and what they'd be doing, the environment, like the layout of the the Talos One station, how the story would progress, and who the enemies. Like all this stuff was just. Well, very well laid out. It was very succinct. I was very impressed. Um, and uh, I'm like, okay, well, that sounds great. And they're like, well, um, I think the first thing to do, you know, is you know, play the game for a while, and we'll watch you, um, which was fun because I felt like I was, you know, one of the focus testers. Uh, and, and, uh, and then they're like, well, let's start off by, you know, ta- helping you helping us like tackle the supporting cast for this game because uh, the lead writer. And lead designer Ricardo Bear, uh, he was handling all the primary characters for the Critical Path, but he knew that there'd be a lot of side quest element stuff too, and he wanted to make sure all those, all, all the characters got equal attention. But he knew that he didn't have the time to do everything. Um, so, you know, I got one side character, then another, then another, and then I helped out with lore and the history, and then the role kept expanding. And then, uh, yeah, and then I, by the end of it, I'm like, wow, I've you know I've run a good chunk of characters for the game, uh, and I'm really happy with them. And uh, and I'm like, God, I hope the game does well. And so it, it seems it seems to be doing pretty great. So I'm I'm happy about that. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's the reception been like so far? Yeah, it's been pretty positive. Um, the 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 idea that I, th- I think it was maybe there was a slight challenge in, in exactly how to to sell the game because like, like what you're mentioning with the the initial hour. It's sometimes it was hard for some uh, reviewers, I think, to know what type of game it was, and then. Uh, but I think the ones that uh, experienced it and played it, I, they they got it and they they enjoyed it. So I'm I'm happy about that. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, with, with the demo, I mean, it does. It, it basically does what it needs to do. It gives you a little taste of the story, but it, it gives you mechanically an idea of how the game is going to work and how you're going to mm-hmm. interact with enemies and stuff. So I thought it was successful on that, uh, you know, on that front. It definitely has me wanting to check it out more. I, I definitely have an interest level that wasn't there before, quite honestly. So, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing it at some point. Absolutely. So I think the demo was effective in that regard, for sure. So Well, good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess, well, I guess this kind of leads into another question. Do you, uh, do you pay, like, as far as, like, when you, when a game gets released, do you pay attention much to the reviews that come out? Or do you just kind of like, eh, no thanks. Uh, I did my job. I don't need to, need to hear about anything else. You, you, you sort of have to, if you, if, if, uh, the reason I say have to is because <clears throat> to be a good, a good game developer, you have to expose yourself and actively go out and see what the critiques of your work are. Because if you do sort of shy away from it, you might make that same mistake again. And mm. you want to know what people responded to. Like, what, what sort of things did they like? What things what things worked well? And those things could be things you never expected. And in which case, that, that gets added to your library. We're like, hey, wait a minute. When I was doing this game, I did learn that doing less companions ends up being better than constantly adding more and more with each game. Like, it's, it's the quality of them that people care about, not the, not the number. Right. Um, and... Uh, and even if the critique is bad, it's good to know like what the issue is. Like, you know, there are some things you can fix with the patch. Uh, you know, a certain weapon's overbalanced, uh, or a certain weapon's not balanced, or you know, there's a certain level people find problematic. Well, all those things are you can still address some of them. And then for other elements, you know, there are things just keep in mind if you do, you know, a sequel or another game where you're like, okay, well now we've learned our lesson with that. Let's make sure that we don't do that again. When you know when doing this certain genre, so reviews and you know the forums, I think, are really important for getting critiques that makes your development skills stronger. So I, I I do try and review those, and even for people who are really upset or really angry, you just gotta swallow it and then try and figure out. It sort of drill down and pass the profanity in the bile <laughs> and figure <laughs> out okay, well, why is this person upset? Like right. why why were they not having a good time? Is there a valid reason for it, and is there a way to fix it? And I think that's important to do too. Right on. That's, I'm, I'm actually kind of. I don't want to say that that was a setup question because that's not what I meant by it. But um, I actually, I'm really glad you answered it in the way you did because I think, um, you know, I've seen other creators or people that have worked on games say, "Oh, I don't pay attention to any of that stuff." And and personally, I think that's one of the most important things about being a creator when you're making things is to be able to get that kind of feedback and to hear from people and to see what, like you said, what does work and what doesn't, and if there's issues and things that you can actually address. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm actually pretty stoked that you said it a lot more or a lot more better. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> yes, Scott, he said it a lot more he better. He said it a lot more better than I would have, obviously. <laughs> No, I, I appreciate your answer, though, because like I said, you know, sometimes you'll see people and they'll be like, nah, I don't pay attention to that stuff. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. some some artists feel like once they're done with it, they're done. You know, they don't want to they don't want to go back and, and, and experience it again. But in, in, in the case in your case, Chris, you know, it's you feel it's an iterative process. And you want to keep building on it and learning from it. Yeah. And uh, also. Um, there, I think there's also some developers where uh, they won't they won't play the game they're working on, and then sometimes, you know, certain departments like you know, it's just as an example, like sometimes maybe like an art department won't won't play the game they're working on, but it's so important because even before the game is released, like you need to be criticizing your own work, and also it's not it's not just 
the art you're making, but you have to see how your art's being used in the environment. Like, you know, is it being positioned correctly? Like, is it actually pulling off the effect that you intended when you first modeled the object or the character? Like, is it being used the way you thought it would? And if not, is there a way to improve it or fix it? But it, it's almost like a super vigilant process. Like, you know, you're, when you create something, like that's almost just the first step to, okay, well now I have to critique, edit, review it until like it's at the level that, you know, I imagined it would be. Cause you can't just, you can't really just fire and forget and hope it all works out. That's not gonna, not usually gonna yield very good results. So, so you're saying it's somewhat like raising a child to a certain degree. You can't just yeah. poop out the child and then put it out in the thing and just go oh, live long and prosper. Yes. No, that can't doesn't take, work. Can't take your eyes off them for a moment. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good note to wrap on. You want to you wanna bring this home, Scott? Yeah. Uh, Chris, you know, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate your time and, and your insight because part of why we do this is to find out the working process and the things that the, the people that are involved in making games and the comics and the things we actually love and care about, what they think about these kind of things and how it might help other people. So thank you very much for sharing. We really, really appreciate you stopping by and spending the time with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. I had a lot of fun. And if you ever want to come back and talk about just, you know, stuff that you're enjoying and not necessarily just you, please do. Yeah. Because then we can I would just, love I don't Yeah. Yes, I'd love a, that. That'd be great. There's an open and invitation. It, if you ever want to come just hang out and talk <laughs> shit, you're more than welcome to do so. I don't, I don't think Chris will talk shit. I think, I think well, you know what I mean. <laughs> but maybe you and I can talk Scott into liking D&D because Scott's <laughs> Well, no, no, no. To be fair, it's that I, it's not that I don't like it. It's my experiences when I was growing up because Chris and I have very similar experiences growing up at the same time when being a geek was not a very popular thing. And I had friends who were really into it and they tried wrangling me into it. And I just my first experience is just kind of like I was just kind of bored because the GM was just not very exciting. He wasn't really. Oh, OK. wasn't really doing it's much. It's the for GM's me. fault. All right, yes, Scott. It wasn't my I fault. Feel like I have that before. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Well, again, Chris, thanks for stopping by. We really appreciate it. And uh, congratulations on the new game and, you know, great success going forward with you, sir. Thank you very much. Well, thank you guys very much. Thanks for stopping by. If you enjoyed this episode of Entertaining Guests, please like, subscribe, and share links to our show on places like Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, and other social media sites you enjoy. Every week, Big and Robot strives to bring you entertaining and insightful content which can be enjoyed on a variety of platforms. From SoundCloud to iTunes, vid.me to YouTube, there are many different ways to connect with our content. If you enjoy our content and would like to support Big and Robot, consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. You'll find links to our Patreon page in the description below. Have a question, comment, or business inquiry? Check below for links to our social media accounts as well as our email address where you can contact us directly. Thanks again for stopping by, and we'll see you next time.